0: Tragedies That fateful evening, Remember Me, an episode, of all things, about adoption, was screened at Paramount Studios. The Moscatels were usually invited to those events, but the Landons couldn't find a space for Albert that night. It's how Eleanor recalled it, at least, which didn't make sense to her because Michael was the showrunner. So when she spotted Lynn's coiffeur sitting in the audience, Mom nearly lost it. How could they deny my son and seat that man in his place?" she asked herself. It was one of many questions that would go unanswered in the sorrowful days that followed my brother's death. It's the nature of tragedy. The emotional upheaval of loss blurs a survivor's memory. And their grief, from denial to bouts of anger, guilt, bargaining, and ultimately acceptance, often ends with a little piece of them dying too. Albert, who left this world a year before I was born, was canonized like a Catholic saint in our home. Portraits of him in sterling silver frames, watching me with his commanding eyes, were displayed in every room. His soft brown hair was cut like a beetle's mop-top, but he grew it long the year before he'd have come of age. And when he popped his collar, you could mistake him for a young John Travolta. He was everything I wasn't, a chess champion, star student, and cotillion dancer, loved by all. And unlike me, Albert never got in that much trouble. He so seldomly veered off course that mom could cite each infraction. His first criminal act, aged seven, was stealing a Mother's Day card from the local drugstore. Ray drove him back to the shop and made him apologize to the manager. In a second instance, Our sultry neighbor caught him peeping on her with a telescope he'd received for his 10th birthday. She wasn't even naked. But Albert's worst offense by far was lobbing an egg at a police cruiser from his balcony as a teen. For that, he was severely reprimanded, although he was aiming for dad's Buick. Every other recollection of him was related to me like a treasured anecdote. Given his good nature, It's hard to discern Michael and Lynn's motive for not letting Albert attend the screening. It wasn't malicious, but I can't fathom it was as simple as not having enough seats. My father thought it might have been due to a girl in the production on whom Albert had developed a crush. Perhaps Michael was trying to keep them apart, or maybe my brother didn't want to go in the first place. Whatever the reason, Albert drove alone to a house party that evening. After stepping outside to get marijuana from the trunk of his car, he was struck violently by a speeding Volkswagen bug. Hearing the accident, horrified guests spilled out and surrounded my brother, whose head had hit the asphalt and was bleeding. An ambulance arrived ten minutes later and rushed him to the hospital. When the call came into the studio that Albert had been admitted, Mom bellowed, a cry so loud it could be heard beyond the padded soundstage. She ran out with Dad. By the time they'd arrived at Albert's bedside, he'd already lost consciousness. My oldest sister, Lori, his best friend and confidant, had been on a date to the drive-in that evening. Albert asked to join her, but she didn't want her little brother hanging around. Any other night but that one, I would have loved to be with him, she confessed over the phone as I was writing this book, not having spoken much about the calamity before. She'd learned he was hurt after having a premonition at the theater. When she called home from a payphone to check in, her housekeeper delivered the bad news that Albert was in a coma. Lori and her date raced to the hospital, blowing through every stoplight. When their car hit the curb at the ER, my sister sprang out, leaving the passenger door ajar and bolting through the lobby to the elevator. She punched the buttons, trying to call it down to no avail and searched for the stairwell but was so frantic she didn't realize it was right behind her. When the elevator doors finally split open, two figures stood before her. Dad and Michael, embracing and weeping. She was too late. Her brother was dead. Lori went into shock from the catastrophic loss. She collapsed on her bed when she came home from the hospital in the early morning. Awakening that afternoon, She briefly sat up at the edge of her mattress before crossing to the window overlooking our driveway. As she peeled back the curtains, she noticed Albert's car parked where it normally would be, unaware a friend had driven it back home. For a fleeting moment, she presumed she'd had a nightmare. She darted down the hallway into her brother's room and saw a body his size, with the same thick mane, lying face down on the sheets. Albert! You're alive! Lori screamed as she jumped onto his torso. But when he flipped over, she burst into tears. It was just a cousin from Seattle who'd come in on the red eye. Lori never really stopped crying after that. And as for Eleanor and Ray, like any parents facing a tribulation of that magnitude, watching their child suffer was unbearable. It felt like a nuclear bomb had dropped. Nothing would be the same again. The way they'd remember their lives would be permanently divided between what happened before Albert took his last breath, and the days afterward. At his funeral, as the coffin was being lowered, Eleanor jumped into her son's grave, kissing his casket and wailing in distress. She had to be lifted out and restrained by my father. The Sterling and Landon families were also devastated by Albert's death, particularly Michael Landon who'd been so close to mom and dad. He never spoke publicly of the incident, but added a new character to the show and named him after the boy as a tribute. My brother's memory, through the character of Albert Ingalls, would live on in Little House on the Prairie for another six seasons and syndication to this day. As a kid, each time I caught a rerun, it reminded me of someone I could never be. My jealousy fed the monster. It laughed as I carried Albert's name, my middle one, like a ship's anchor. Though I was loved, the specter of my brother would haunt me for the better part of my life, and measuring up to his legacy felt nerve-wracking. Seeking solace in the year following his death, Mom sought fortune-tellers and mystics, talking to anyone who claimed they could reach her son on the other side. But it was futile, and she was a shell of her former self nothing could console her. She cried so much that her face became swollen, as if she'd gone twelve rounds with a boxer. As the days wore on, darkness enveloped the once-gleaming canopy above our home. The haze was like the ash from a massive volcano, blocking the sunlight and killing all the dreams planted in its fertile garden. Even the gardenia bushes outside Mom's window didn't seem to smell as sweet as they once had. She rarely left the house. Luckily, she had a friend in her corner who wouldn't give up on her, a bombastic socialite I'd come to know as Miss Dottie. While said, the woman moved like an angel, one you might find bathing in the clouds of a fresco on a cathedral ceiling. I remember her dancing across our living room like a blind ballerina, belting standards and lightening my mood. A year after Albert died. Miss Dottie heard through the grapevine that a young, unmarried woman in her neighborhood had become pregnant. The girl's father was livid when he found out the circumstances and beseeched his daughter to get rid of the baby by any means necessary. Eleanor, no longer of childbearing age, began considering adoption after talking with Miss Dottie about the situation. Nothing would bring Albert back, yet the thought of pitter-patter around the house was one thing that made Mom feel better. Six months later, I was delivered to the Moscatels, wrapped like a present, with a ribbon tying me to the past. Tragedies That fateful evening, Remember Me, an episode of All Things, about adoption, was screened at Paramount Studios. The Moscatels were usually invited to those events, but the Landons couldn't find a space for Albert that night. It's how Eleanor recalled it, at least, which didn't make sense to her because Michael was the showrunner. So when she spotted Lynn's coiffeur sitting in the audience, Mom nearly lost it. How could they deny my son and seat that man in his place? She asked herself. It was one of many questions that would go unanswered in the sorrowful days that followed my brother's death. It's the nature of tragedy. The emotional upheaval of loss blurs a survivor's memory. And their grief, from denial to bouts of anger, guilt, bargaining, and ultimately acceptance, often ends with a little piece of them dying, too. Albert, who left this world a year before I was born, was canonized like a Catholic saint in our home. Portraits of him in sterling silver frames Watching me with his commanding eyes were displayed in every room. His soft brown hair was cut like a Beatles mop top, but he grew it long the year before he'd have come of age. And when he popped his collar, you could mistake him for a young John Travolta. He was everything I wasn't. A chess champion, star student, and cotillion dancer, loved by all. And unlike me, Albert never got in that much trouble. He so seldomly veered off course that Mom could cite each infraction. His first criminal act, aged seven, was stealing a Mother's Day card from the local drugstore. Ray drove him back to the shop and made him apologize to the manager. In a second instance, our sultry neighbor caught him peeping on her with a telescope he'd received for his tenth birthday. She wasn't even naked. But Albert's worst offense by far, was lobbing an egg at a police cruiser from his balcony as a teen. For that, he was severely reprimanded, although he was aiming for Dad's Buick. Every other recollection of him was related to me like a treasured anecdote. Given his good nature, it's hard to discern Michael and Lynn's motive for not letting Albert attend the screening. It wasn't malicious, but I can't fathom it was as simple as not having enough seats. My father thought it might have been due to a girl in the production on whom Albert had developed a crush. Perhaps Michael was trying to keep them apart, or maybe my brother didn't want to go in the first place. Whatever the reason, Albert drove alone to a house party that evening. After stepping outside to get marijuana from the trunk of his car, he was struck violently by a speeding Volkswagen bug. Hearing the accident, horrified guests spilled out and surrounded my brother whose head had hit the asphalt and was bleeding. An ambulance arrived 10 minutes later and rushed him to the hospital. When the call came into the studio that Albert had been admitted, mom bellowed, a cry so loud it could be heard beyond the padded soundstage. She ran out with dad. By the time they'd arrived at Albert's bedside, he'd already lost consciousness. My oldest sister, Lori, his best friend and confidant, had been on a date to the drive-in that evening. Albert asked to join her, but she didn't want her little brother hanging around. Any other night but that one, I would have loved to be with him, she confessed over the phone as I was writing this book, not having spoken much about the calamity before. She'd learned he was hurt after having a premonition at the theater. When she called home from a payphone to check in, our housekeeper delivered the bad news that Albert was in a coma. Lori and her date raced to the hospital, blowing through every stoplight. When their car hit the curb at the ER, my sister sprang out, leaving the passenger door ajar and bolting through the lobby to the elevator. She punched the buttons, trying to call it down to no avail, and searched for the stairwell but was so frantic, she didn't realize it was right behind her. When the elevator doors finally split open, two figures stood before her, Dad and Michael embracing and weeping. She was too late. Her brother was dead. Lori went into shock from the catastrophic loss. She collapsed on her bed when she came home from the hospital in the early morning. Awakening that afternoon, she briefly sat up at the edge of her mattress before crossing to the window overlooking our driveway. As she peeled back the curtains, she noticed Albert's car parked where it normally would be, unaware a friend had driven it back home. For a fleeting moment, she presumed she'd had a nightmare. She darted down the hallway into her brother's room and saw a body his size with the same thick mane lying face down on the sheets. Albert, you're alive! Lori screamed as she jumped onto his torso. But when he flipped over, she burst into tears. It was just a cousin from Seattle who'd come in on the red eye. Lori never really stopped crying after that. And as for Eleanor and Ray, like any parents facing a tribulation of that magnitude, watching their child suffer was unbearable. It felt like a nuclear bomb had dropped. Nothing would be the same again. The way they'd remember their lives would be permanently divided between what happened before Albert took his last breath and the days afterward. At his funeral, as the coffin was being lowered, Eleanor jumped into her son's grave, kissing his casket and wailing in distress. She had to be lifted out and restrained by my father. The Sterling and Landon families were also devastated by Albert's death, particularly Michael Landon, who'd been so close to Mom and Dad. He never spoke publicly of the incident, but added a new character to the show and named him after the boy as a tribute. My brother's memory through the character of Albert Ingalls, would live on in Little House on the Prairie for another six seasons and syndication to this day. As a kid, each time I caught a rerun, it reminded me of someone I could never be. My jealousy fed the monster. It laughed as I carried Albert's name, my middle one, like a ship's anchor. Though I was loved, the specter of my brother would haunt me for the better part of my life and measuring up to his legacy felt nerve-wracking. Seeking solace in the year following his death, Mom sought fortune-tellers and mystics, talking to anyone who claimed they could reach her son on the other side. But it was futile, and she was a shell of her former self. Nothing could console her. She cried so much that her face became swollen, as if she'd gone 12 rounds with a boxer. As the days wore on, darkness enveloped the once gleaming canopy above our home. The haze was like the ash from a massive volcano, blocking the sunlight and killing all the dreams planted in its fertile garden. Even the gardenia bushes outside Mom's window didn't seem to smell as sweet as they once had. She rarely left the house. Luckily, she had a friend in her corner who wouldn't give up on her, a bombastic socialite I'd come to know as Miss Dottie. While heavy said, the woman moved like an angel, one you might find bathing in the clouds of a fresco on a cathedral ceiling. I remember her dancing across our living room like a blind ballerina, belting standards and lightening my mood. A year after Albert died, Miss Dottie heard through the grapevine that a young, unmarried woman in her neighborhood had become pregnant. The girl's father was livid when he found out the circumstances and besieged his daughter to get rid of the baby by any means necessary. Eleanor, no longer of childbearing age, began considering adoption after talking with Miss Dottie about the situation. Nothing would bring Albert back, yet the thought of pitter-patter around the house was one thing that made Mom feel better. Six months later, I was delivered to the Moscatels, wrapped like a present with a ribbon tying me to the past.